The book of Exodus and the Gospel of Matthew offer us two faces. One we see, one we don't. I thought that Magritte would be the right person to have painted this story. Two faces, the one with a prominent chin and the other, well, it could just be a space in the canvas or all his paints combined together or a fast retreating back view. Magritte's the man to do it. What would we make of such a painting? You and you and you and I typically would take different meanings from it. And by meanings, I don't just refer to the deep stuff. We might be amused or puzzled. We might think we get what the painter had intended. Or something might just strike us. That's how it is with paintings. It's how it is with poetry, isn't it? It's how it is with music, sculpture. It's certainly the way with our Bible. The words in there, the passages, the chapters, the books, are written with inspiration or anger occasionally or love and they've become carefully presented, chosen and presented so that we might read these words and no others as scripture. Now if we take the first reading and all that surrounds it, we've got a lot of instructions there. You've got the commandments, then the tablets that they were written on got broken, and then some more were written and so on. We've got lots of instructions. But an awful large part of the Bible, rather than being a kind of highway code, is it's a gigantic novel portraying the mishaps and triumphs of road users over the centuries. And from that, we're supposed to know how to drive on the roads. The Old and New Testaments, as we have them, are packed with incident, encounters, and conversations that we have to kind of interrogate ourselves and unpick. Pretty frustrating if you're a person who seeks certainty or if you're in a particular time of your life when you need something really really solid now it's a license to read any damn thing into it if you fancy a bit of self-justification or promotion as a sage or a guru but I think St. Paul had it pretty well when he said that we see through a glass darkly. It's all cloudy mirrors and smoke and we find bits occasionally we think, ah, oh, I got that. And then the other bit that we thought we'd got, 
kind of vanishes because it contradicts it. Oh, can drive you nuts. And today we have conversations about faces. The face of God and the face of Tiberius, Julius, Caesar, Augustus. <clears throat> Moses had a profound and intimate relationship with God. He was mad keen to know God better and see him and be acknowledged by him. This was both personal and, you might say, political. For Moses was dealing with a pretty recalcitrant people and needed all the handed down authority he could get. So what we have in this story from Exodus, around the time of the setting down of the commandments and other aspects of the law, what we have is Moses trying to comprehend this close encounter with God. For him it is close, but not close enough. There's a touch of desperation about it. And at the least, if you don't take that, at least you can see there is high emotion here. Whatever happened to Moses, he could not adequately put into words. But he has conveyed vividly both how profound it was and how frustrating it was. God's face stands for all that was withheld from Moses stands for all that he failed to grasp, for all that he failed to know about God. That is, if you like, the face. The second face, the one we can see, and we can see it. Go to a museum and you will find coins with the face of Tiberius, such a coin as Jesus was handed in this brilliant little story. Now, as you probably know, Roman coins had several functions. They provided a currency that worked throughout the empire for trading and taxes. The taxes were especially important because all empires work, for as long as they do, by extracting wealth from the subjugated peoples. And even, in the more sophisticated empires, from the colonists that they put into the lands of the subjugated peoples. So, Roman coins had this function. There's no equivocation about whose taxes they were going to be. They were Roman coins. But Roman coins were also propaganda. They were, the, were a means of reinforcing the authority of Caesar and later of the emperors. They were the sole means of showing the image to the world of the man who held power over it. Just think about it. No newspapers, no paintings, no pictures. The thing you had, the thing that showed you there was a person there 
the rule of Rome was vested in this person. That coin said it, and it said it in its millions all over the empire. The rule of Rome was no vague constraint. It had a face. And Jesus, of course, plays with this to the frustration of the Pharisees and Herodians. These people, the Pharisees and Herodians, I mean, there were different kinds of Pharisees, but the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were not keen on each other. Um, the Pharisees were very much dedicated to the law. They'd be dead keen on all the exodus around the passage that we heard. And the Herodians looked to the various Herods as the answer to their problems under Rome. They had a not quite, but not far short of messianic view of the Herods. But on this occasion, they pooled their resources. They'd come together to try and trap Jesus because both parties saw him as a challenge. Hence the Caesar God conundrum that they put before him. They also, as it happens, hated those taxes because these were middle class, reasonably well-off business people. Um, they're, not, they're not priests. These are, these are people who hold such power as you are allowed to hold still under Rome. And they, being quite well off, they were slightly less well off than they'd like to be because of these damn taxes. But their target this day was Jesus. Jesus' answer, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay to God what is God's, is terrific. And they, they were amazed, the reading says. I'll bet they were. They were livid. Nobody likes a smart ass. And that's what they'd have thought. And they went away with their tails between their legs. Job done. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay to God what is God's. But, 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 it's in our scripture. Someone thought we should read it. Now, did they just want us to applaud Jesus for his smartness? Happy to do that. It's always good to see people get their comeuppance. Applaud him for his savvy dig at his critics and their political stances. It might have been a bit of that in choosing to tell this story. But I reckon we're supposed to take something more from this encounter. We're supposed to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay to God what is God's. And if we do try to take something from this, take that message, it's a classic. It's an uncertainty wrapped 
in an apparent certainty. Give to, well, who is Caesar for us? What are the valid authorities or powers to which we should fulfill our obligations? Legal, civic, governmental, the king whose face will be on our <coughs> coins one day soon? And how do we divide our emotions, efforts, wealth, loyalty, time, you name it, between what we might call the secular and the profound? That's a question we are asked to answer every day. We are not given a slick answer ready made. The fact that it's here means that there's an understanding that we do face this question. This is, in a sense, a sympathetic passage because we so often try to do this and how many times do we reckon perhaps we've got it wrong? Oh, goodness. It's one bit of help later on in Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So, if it comes to, do I help this person or do something for God? That's one of the easier ones, because by helping this person and so on. But in the end, this wasn't the highway code. The judgment is ours. It's individual. Prayer helps. Talking helps. The examples of saints and sinners help. But daily, we should remember that we choose between the two faces the one that promotes its authority and the one that is indistinct, blurred, uncertain. Amen.